Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Yanis Gabriel of the School of Management talks about when a picture paints more than a thousand words. It's my great pleasure as Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bath to welcome you here to this inaugural lecture this evening, which is to be given by Yanis Gabriel. He is Professor of Organisational Theory at the University. Earlier, he held chairs at Imperial and Royal Holloway in the University of London. And Yanis has a degree in mechanical engineering, so he could probably have silenced you, from Imperial, where he also carried out postgraduate studies in industrial sociology. He has a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley. A man of many disciplinary backgrounds. Yanis is well known for his work into organisational storytelling and narratives. Leadership, management learning, psychoanalytic studies of work and the culture and politics of contemporary consumption. He has used stories as a way of studying numerous social and organisational phenomena, including leader-follower relations, group dynamics and fantasies, nostalgia, insults and apologies. Yanis is co-founder and co-originator of the Organisational Storytelling Seminar Series, now in its ninth year. More recently, Yanis has carried out a series of studies of leadership and management. He is currently working on a four-year field study of leadership and patient care in the hospital sector, in which storytelling is used as a major part of the methodology. <coughs> as a founding member of the Leadership Academy for the Southeast, Yanis has hosted and chaired several workshops and has initiated a research project on the needs of unemployed professionals and senior executives in the 50s. He is also known for his use of psychoanalytic concepts and theories in social and organisational analysis. He has used psychoanalytic principles in analysing leader-follower relations, group dysfunctions and organisational identities and narratives. I should come clean at this point and say that as a social psychologist who is really rather interested in leadership and organisations myself, I have found Yanis's work of tremendous value to the point where in a recent chapter on narrative and diary methods that I wrote, I almost fell into the trap of copying exactly what he had previously, <laughs> but not quite. Um, Yanis is author of nine books, as numerous journals, um, articles, and he has really taken advantage of all of the channels of communication that you can possibly imagine to be prestigious within the academic world. Now, he's also an editor of Management Learning and an associate editor of Human Relations. 
He's a trustee of the Tavistock Institute and of the Bayswater Institute. His enduring fascination as a researcher lies in what he describes as the unmanageable qualities of a life in and outside of organisations. His lecture tonight is entitled Losing the Plot in the Era of Image when a picture tells more than a thousand words. Will you join me, please, in welcoming Professor Yanis Gabriel. Vice-Chancellor, Dean, friends, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming this evening to this lecture on... Uh, Losing the Plot in the Era of the Image. It is a presentation that has grown out of an increasing sense of dissatisfaction that I have had in the last few years about the, the way that we have been using the word story in everyday conversations, but more specifically, the way that we use the word story in academic discourses. Over the years, certainly when I first arrived at the University of Bath in 1989, uh, stories were not a very widely used uh, resource in uh, social research. Since then, of course, uh, storytelling and stories have become widely accepted as opening vital windows in the world of organizations, and an increasing amount of uh, research has made use of stories and narratives to study different aspects of organizational life. Uh, however, in the same period, the word story has uh, proliferated out of all proportion. We find stories and narratives in every walk of life, in the media, all kinds of discourses. And um, it has uh, become so widely used that virtually anything that carries meaning today can be referred to as a story. This is something that I want to test and, uh, and uh, challenge in this presentation. I will argue that in using uh, the word story in this uh, very broad sense, we lose something valuable and precious about stories, something that is quite unique to stories. Uh, and we have lost sight of uh, another type of text, which uh, certainly saturates our universe today, uh, physical and social environment, namely image. So I want to juxtapose in my presentation today image, picture, the visual world, without of stories and plots. So I want to start with uh, the point of departure for this talk. His paintings don't tell stories, says Greet, the central character in Tracy Chevalier's uh, novel, The Girl with a Pearl Earring apropos of Johannes Vermeer's painting. As if to demonstrate the girl's lack of imagination, Chevalier, the author of the, of the novel, uh, wrote a very compelling novel inspired by this painting, where this girl emerges first as uh, a character in the story who catches the imagination of the painter uh, because she's cutting vegetables and places them according to color on a board. He feels uh, uh, that her sensitivity to color is something that attracts her to him. And uh, he hires her first uh, as a domestic servant, later as his assistant, his muse, and eventually for, as the model for this famous portrait. As many reviewers have noted, uh, Chevalier captures brilliantly 
the essence of the painting, just as we might say uh, the painter himself captured something of the essence of this girl. Subsequent, the film was made, so, uh, that, that came out with the same title tried to do something, something of the same, but maybe in spite of its beautiful imagery, did not quite uh, capture the uh, psychological subtleties of the novel. Who would nowadays dispute that a painting, an image, or a photograph uh, tells a story? Every picture tells a story has become a widely acceptable cliche almost. This expression can be traced back to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, the heroine of the book, a, uh, looking at Berwick's History of British Birds, exclaims, each picture told a story, mysterious often to my underdeveloped understanding and imperfect feelings, yet ever profoundly interesting, as interesting as the tales Bessie sometimes narrated on winter evenings when she chanced to be in a good humor. For Jane Eyre, the illustrations of Bewick's uh, stories uh, evoked images of shipwrecks, solitary, solitary rocks and pro promontories, and the vast expanses of icy Nordic landscapes. Today, as academics, we have come to view most, if not all, <coughs> pictures as telling stories. Indeed, few would dispute that any image, including that of a building, a tattooed human body, or the gleaming surface of an automobile can tell a story. We have become accustomed to reading stories in the most unstory-like texts. Now in this presentation I want to probe this view that pictures tell stories. Of course there are numerous paintings that are inspired by particular stories and in the genre of continuous narrative a painting can present different scenes from a particular story sometimes next to each other or all on the same uh, canvas. Here we have, for example, John the Baptist, uh, several scenes from his uh, life and death uh, in a triptych, whereas here we have several images and incidents of his life and death all on the same canvas. Yet many artists insist that their paintings uh, do not tell stories, or at least they don't try to tell stories. Is this a story? Of course, no one can stop readers or writers from reading a story in any image. But what I want to argue is that the attempt to read a story in every picture, every image, or indeed any meaningful text is symptomatic of an era which has lost its ability to tell and to listen to stories. This is what I will describe as narrative de-skilling. In narrative de-skilling, we end up with a situation where Every X can tell a story, where X can be anything. Try, for example, a symptom, an accident, a bottle of wine, a brand, or anything else. Further, I will argue that in a spectacle-saturated and media-dominated world, stories are transcended by mass-produced images, some of which assume iconic standing. Such images possess considerable emotional and rhetorical power and may even claim to tell a story. But my argument is that images, icons, and pictures rely on very different processes to make their message felt from stories. My image does not lament narrative de-skilling, nor does it look nostalgically back at the days when proper stories could be heard around the family hearth. 
what it does do is to use narratives, this killing, as the starting point for an analysis of new sense-making patterns which are becoming increasingly preponderant today. So I want to also indicate the compelling and enduring quality of stories, uh, but the unique contribution in that regard. I will conclude by suggesting that narrative de-skilling is matched by development of new skills, which the generations of our uh, parents and grandparents uh, lacked. And uh, some of these involve withstanding cacophony, chaos and confusion, making sense of perplexing uh, paintings like this one, and uh, even listening to accounts which uh, lack a, conclus a conclusion or a, uh, some kind of apotheosis in the end. So this is not an argument that many of my colleagues who, uh, who use stories in their research are going to accept very easily because much of what is written in this area is characterized by the assumption that we inhabit a narrative universe, that the world in which we live is one which is full of stories and narratives. And storytelling is the principal way of making sense of the world. I'll explain this in a minute, but this is a reversal of an earlier approach, which was very common in the 1930s, which had argued that uh, modernity, the rise of big cities, the arrival of electric light, movies, uh, music halls, and so on, had sounded the death knell for stories. Uh, in those days, it was quite common to read uh, people like Walter Benjamin argue that uh, storytelling had become a defunct genre. Late modernity, however, by contrast, has rediscovered its appetite for stories. Novak, for example, argues that the human being alone among creatures on the earth is a storytelling animal, sees the present rising out of the past, heading into a future, perceives reality in narrative forms. And Hardy says we dream in narrative, daydream in narrative, remember, anticipate, hope, despair, believe, doubt, plan, revise, criticize, construct, gossip, learn, hate, and love by narrative. Building on such narrativist premises, scholars have developed a series of arguments according to which narrative is the base of experience, an ongoing attempt to make sense of the day-to-day -day events that we experience in our life rely on our ability to place them in story-like patterns. In these arguments, the, the word story very often emerges as a verb to story an experience. David Sims, for example, a long-standing colleague and an academic in this university and friend, has uh, written, we lead storied lives. We're continuously producing storied versions of what is happening in our lives, as well as revising the way that we tell the stories of earlier parts of our lives. We also spend much time plotting and imagining the next chapter in our lives. Sims eloquently captures the reflexive quality of storytelling, where the storyteller and the protagonist of the story the narrator and the hero or heroine of the narrative co-create each other. Where in telling the story of my life, I change the I who tells the story. 
At every moment, the storyteller creates, creates a protagonist whose predicament redefines the storyteller. Many authors now believe that in our time, a variety of circumstances have conspired to make this telling of our life stories difficult. Unlike the generations of our parents and grandparents, we live in a confusing, fast-changing, sometimes chaotic and perplexing world. And sometimes it is hard to place our experiences in story-like patterns of achievement, of disappointment, of disillusionment, of triumph. Richard Sennett, for example, has argued that the emphasis on flexibility has meant that mature capitalism denies us the opportunity to create continuous narratives for our lives the way that the generation of our parents and grandparents could. Yet he too argues that implotment of life continues as a pressing need and that unplotted experiences are a source of malaise and alienation. In summary then, much scholarship uh, has been dedicated into arguing that nothing, specifically no meaning, exists outside, outside of narrative or story. It is in story where meaning resides. It is in story where a character is, emerges as a villain, as a hero, as a victim, as a, as a love object, as somebody who we sympathize with or somebody we envy or somebody we hate. At this point now, a few qualifications are in order. Um, hmm. Why? Because I would like to distinguish between story and narrative in the first instance. There are a lot of different types of narratives. A movie is a narrative. A cartoon is a narrative. Many ballads, operas, and dramas involve narratives. But I would like to keep the word story for something more specific, something that involves what I call a narrative contract between the storyteller and his or her audience, a unique relationship between somebody who tells a story, unlike somebody who gives a lecture, somebody who tells a story engages in a relationship where the audience gives him or her poetic license to embellish the facts, sometimes to make wild flights of imagination, provided that he or she can deliver a meaningful, juicy, entertaining, warning, or in some way significant uh, piece of narrative. So, uh, and this is for me very important, because I want to show later on in my talk that if you're a photographer, a movie maker, a television producer, you use very different uh, relations with your audiences, a different form of contract, which relies for its effectiveness on different parameters. So if not all narratives are stories, not all texts are narratives. It's another thing that I want to challenge. So what is not a narrative? A question is not a narrative. A question may augur or announce a narrative, but by itself the question is not a narrative. A question may be answered in narrative or non-narrative ways. When did the Queen die? She died in 19,001. A very different type of answer from she died when she heard that her poodle had died. 
Uh, I want to keep facts and stories somewhat separate. Facts and information are far removed from narrative in as much as their loyalty lies predominantly with accuracy. When we say that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius at a certain, in a certain place at a certain time, or that the Battle of Waterloo took place in 1815, we make factual statements which may be right or wrong. Of course, as numerous accounts of uh, the Battle of Waterloo indicate, facts can feed rich narratives and stories, yet outside of plots, facts remain just information. Facts, however, and th this has been a very important part for me to separate between facts and stories. Facts are not the only thing that is not a narrative. Noises and sounds are not narratives. Musical scores are not narratives, although some of them may be inspired by narratives. Images by themselves are not narratives. This could be an apple in your local supermarket, or it could be the starting point of the Paris uh, judgment that many painters have uh, sought to capture. The image may prompt a narrative, may illuminate a story, or may offer an interpretation of a story, as Renoir does here. Images like sounds and like facts can assume diverse relations to narratives. For example, an image can inspire a narrative, just like Vermeer's portrait inspired Tracy Chevalier. Alternatively, images can function as icons for well-known and well-understood scenes or narratives the death of uh, John the Baptist. Icons neither tell a story nor interpret it for us. They represent a story or a particular scene from it. And as representations, their core quality is that they're based on fixed, non-arbitrary relations between signifier and signified. This could not be St. George. This has to be St. <coughs> John because there is a, a sword and a head that is about to be separated from the body. The sword, the head, define this as an icon of St. John. Of course, there are many paintings which challenge or dislocate the relation between signified and signifier, offering new insights or new interpretations of existing stories, portraying or highlighting features that we hadn't thought of before, as indeed Caravaggio does in this, uh, uh, in this uh, account of the same scene. So great paintings and works of art can undoubtedly suggest new meanings and interpretations of a story, but they don't tell the story. I will argue that images, including paintings, photographs, in, uh, work in very different ways from the way that um, stories work. So when I say image, what I mean by image is any text that can be appropriated visually without the help of an alphabet. So this image of uh, a person captured on a security camera is just this, an image. A picture is something that has been, an image that has been created by an author, such as a painter or a photographer. Whereas a spectacle or a show is a complex association of images and pictures, often moving ones, produced by museum curators, television, film or theatrical producers, so forth. What I now want to argue is that in spite of our fascination with image, still and moving, we have been generally blind to their essentially unstoried qualities. In other words, that images 
are appropriated by us in different way from the way a story is appropriated. And of course, in saturating my presentation today with quite a lot of images, I'm trying to make this point. An image uh, can, uh, can trigger various emotions, stimulate desires, arouse fantasies, prompt associations with other images. My argument is not that pictures and images exist in a vacuum or, or in a world without um, words, but what I'm arguing is that increasingly, as spectators, we come to appropriate images without words, incorporate them in our experience, uh, and seek, without necessarily seeking to turn them into a story. Of course, if you were to improvise a story about this image, one could do. But when you're driving your car and you see this image in a poster, you don't think of a story. But it evokes, triggers some response, some fantasy, some desire, some abhorrence or whatever. So we are now living in a spectacular world uh, where images saturate our spaces. A hundred years ago, someone who wanted to see Jacques-Louis David's uh, famous painting, The Death of Marat, had to go to the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Brussels in order to see the painting. I remember as a child being taken uh, aback by looking at the reproduction of the painting in uh, black and white in a tiny book. Today, of course, the painting can be seen on innumerable reproductions in books, magazines, televisions, and, and computer screens. The idea that we live in an era saturated by spectacle, where imagery reigns supreme, was of course not new. Parodying Marx, Guy Debord opened his Situationist Manifesto with uh, the words, in societies where modern conditions of production prevail, all life presents itself as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has moved away into representation. Allowing for the obvious hyperbole, the board's premise seems to be a lot more powerful today than it was in the 1960s when it became the basis of a situationist critique. After all, in the 1960s, there were just three TV channels in black and white compared to the genuine phantasmagoria of screens, computer monitors, mobile phones, posters, magazines, and all the rest that we have today. Some theorists, uh, uh, including Bauman, Ritzer, and Baudrillard, has, have since argued the spectacle has become the primary type of experience in our lives in late modernity, dominating every other form of experience. Inspired by Bauman, Ritzer, for example, has argued that spectacle has led to a re-enchantment of the world in what he calls cathedrals of consumption. Shopping malls, glass buildings, tourist resorts, sports venues, theme parks are all minutely planned and orchestrated shows with spectators themselves becoming part of the show. Spectacle becomes the archetypal experience uh, offering, in the words of Bauman, the promise of new, overwhelming, mind-boggling, or, or spine-chilling, but always exhilarating experience. Spectacle. And Baudrillard, who's been the most provocative of all, and has stretched this argument further, suggests that other people's destitution becomes our adventure playground. We are consumers of the ever-delightful spectacle of poverty and catastrophe. 
and of the moving spectacle of our own efforts to alleviate it. When we run out of disasters from elsewhere, or where, when we can no longer uh, be traded like, sorry, disasters that can be traded like coffee or other commodities, the West will then be forced to produce its own catastrophe for itself. Images then, like narratives, have their own regimes of truth, to use Foucault's word. We respond differently to a painting, a cartoon, an advertisement, or a photograph. Some of these regimes may mirror those with, uh, to which we subject narratives. We may, for example, ask questions like, does this image work? What does it have to say? Did somebody create it with a specific end in mind? Does it evoke another image? And so forth. And in many cases, we may answer these questions in ways similar to the way that we would answer them apropos of a narrative. For example, an advertiser's image will sensitize us in the same way as an advertiser's uh, story. It is meant to be beautified, it is the result of careful doctoring, touching up, and so forth. So, as Campbell has said, images like these are illusions, relying on our ability to treat sensory data as if it were real, whilst knowing that it is indeed false. It is this as-if response which is at the heart of modern hedonism. Other images are recognized as representations of actual events, triggering a wide range of unstoried emotions, which sometimes supplant moral judgment in what McIntyre described as emotivism. The story behind this famous picture of Saddam Hussein's statue in Ferdas Square is not very well known. The statue was pulled down by an M88 vehicle driven by U.S. Marine Sergeant Leon Lambert on uh, 9th of April 2003. The image was shown every eight minutes, every eight minutes on CNN and every four minutes on Fox TV throughout the next 24 hours, purportedly defining the precise moment of the collapse of the old regime. Pictures are the mother's milk for television, and it was one hell of a picture, said CNN reporter Walter Rogers. Subsequent scrutiny, however, revealed that the uh, incident was widely misconstrued. In fact, the incident was witnessed by a very small crowd of Iraqis, uh, who, a few of whom had tried to topple the statue unsuccessfully earlier. Eventually, when the statue was toppled by the U.S. Marine, a small crowd of a few hundred had assembled, of, of which, according to the New Yorker magazine, about half were journalists. <laughs> For much of the time, the crowd was described as listless, only lighting up whenever a TV camera focused on them. <laughs> Thus, the fallacious and ruinous story of the premature end of the Second Iraq War was constructed on the back of this picture. And even today, when everyone who wants to know the facts can find them, the picture retains its iconic and tragic qualities. In this way, we use image to create reality, to define events, to constitute the world in which we inhabit. Far from constantly composing our lives through stories and narratives, I would argue that most of us 
most of the time, accept our lives as disorderly sets of photographic flashbacks and collages. Why should any of this matter? It matters because, as the example of the toppling of this uh, statue indicates, images and stories work in very different ways. Consider, for example, the timing issue. An effective image can work almost instantaneously and subliminally, whereas a story has to be absorbed and processed. When those of you who lecture tell a story in the course of a lecture, I'm sure that you observe the antennae of your audience suddenly sharpen up because with a story they can lose a plot. With a list of uh, PowerPoint uh, uh, bullet points, uh, you can miss one, two, but you can still get the sense. But with a story, if you miss the crucial uh, piece in the middle, you've lost it. It's as if you heard nothing. The expression of a person's face, the tensions in their body, the lighting, the perspective, can communicate a mood, an emotion, or a moral tone almost instantaneously. But I would contend that the major difference between the way that images and, and narratives work lie in the word plot. The way that events are woven together in a story which makes a story quite unique and different and unlike other forms of text. And it is his emphasis in plot and his enduring analysis of tragic plots that Aristotle identified three core ingredients. And Aristotle's theory of plot is the equivalent for uh, literary science to Pythagoras' theorem, absolutely foundational to understand. Um, so what Aristotle identified as the three ingredients for a plot, peripatia, are uh, trouble. You can't have a story without trouble, or maybe a boom, an opportunity, a chance, something tempting and alluring. But peripatia alone, trouble alone, is not story. There are a lot of troubles in the, in the world, but themselves they make no story. There has to be what he calls anagnorisis, recognition. The recognition by the hero of the significance of the events that he or she is confronting. And on top of that, there has to be pathos, emotion, or passion that fill the soul of the hero or the heroine and which are communicated to the audience. Each of these three elements are absolutely essential, and without, without them, you can't have a, a, a plot, you can't have a story. And the, the elements bring together the audience with the protagonist of, of the drama and the storyteller himself or herself. So the audience, for example, anagnorisis, they can see here comes trouble before the protagonist can realize what is going on. And sometimes they realize that the trouble comes in different forms from the one that they first imagined. The emotions of the protagonists, for their part, spark off different emotions in the audience, of which Aristotle singled out fear and, uh, and pity as the paramount emotions for tragic plots. Now, Aristotle insisted that the third feature of the plot, pathos or emotion, is the least significant of it that the other two are far more significant than the third one. Uh, a man or an animal being constantly beaten up may be a horrible and disturbing spectacle, but hardly a story. Prometheus bound on Caucasus or Sisyphus pushing his rock up and down the mountain 
are highly tragic plots because they involve Peripatia, the reversal from the former glories, and also the recognition that their predicament was brought about by their own actions. Yet it is suffering which pictures can communicate. It is pictures, it is the strong, uh, the strong uh, uh, trump card of pictures that they can communicate suffering. They can't communicate uh, plot otherwise. So therefore, I think it's wrong to accuse our culture of gratuitous portrayals of violence because in a spectacular culture, this is the one part of plot that can be displayed. Nor should we think that because uh, an image cannot portray peripatia and recognition, it is less symbolically charged or emotionally powerful than a story. On the contrary, in a, in a spectacular culture, it is often said that the picture tells more than 10,000 words, the title of my presentation today. And it is interesting to contrast this with the earlier cliché. A picture tells more than 10,000 words, as against a picture tells, every picture tells a story. According to the Oxford Dictionary of Proverbs, uh, uh, the, the, the expression a picture tells more than 10,000 words does not originate in an ancient Chinese proverb, as sometimes uh, asserted, but its origin is in the 1920s. It comes out of the high noon of modernity, when photographs and moving pictures, artificial lights, and new forms of entertainment uh, had dislodged storytelling from its privileged position in the narrative universe. It was in the 1920s that this notion that the picture reveals more. High modernity brought with it a number of de-skillings, as my sociology colleagues will know, among which uh, we have Henry Ford with his um, uh, de-skilling of, uh, of uh, craft work, uh, but it also augured other kinds of these killings. Why learn to play the violin or the piano when we can have a recording so easily? Why learn to cook when you can buy ready-made food from your local supermarket? And more importantly, why learn to tell a story or to listen to stories, weaving plots when stories are available in every medium? and more importantly, when stories are outshone by image in their abilities to change hearts and minds. The skills of the storyteller have not disappeared, but they have become the preserve of fewer and fewer people. But by contrast, a new set of skills has come into being. Learning to program your DVD player or your mobile phone, how to use a, a digital camera, being able to play computer games on the internet, pressing keys with millisecond precision while also preparing tomorrow's uh, homework or listening to the lecturer's lecture. These are skills that would have perplexed our parents and grandparents, but it's ones that we take for granted today. Quick gratification is, um, is uh, a feature of the skills that we use today, and quick gratification requires skills of its own like filtering out irrelevant noise, focusing on what creates a memorable emotional experience, tolerating uncertainty, and so on and so forth. So the key question that, that, addresses, that we are facing today is not what is the meaning of this, but is this a text? Is this a text? And does it matter if it isn't? Does any of this matter? 
as I was preparing this uh, talk, as I was rather started to think about uh, this, uh, the dreadful images from the Abu Ghraib image were published, first on CBS and then saturating the world uh, news media. These pictures uh, raised age-old uh, questions about morality, politics, and so forth, but they offered, if anything, to me, ample confirmation that the old cliché that the picture tells more than a thousand words and every picture tells a story have something in them. Each picture of prisoner abuse had far greater effect than the countless personal testimonies of such abuse, stories that had been confirmed by numerous reports earlier. What I came to realize was that the image themselves told no stories, but rather acted as anti-stories in two distinct ways. First, the torpedoed official narratives, according to which the coalition, having failed to identify weapons of mass destruction, legitimated its invasion and subsequent uh, occupation of the country by presenting it as an effort uh, at removing an abhorrent dictatorship. The symbolism of abuse perpetrated by the coalition was uh, in the very prison where Saddam Hussein had tortured his victims was obvious. Different regimes, same prisons. In this way, the images acted as killer facts of official narratives. But more important than that, they confirmed that stories are no longer a match for images in creating a, a, a climate of public opinion. As long as um, images of prisoner abuse could be kept from the public domain, stories could be dismissed as allegations, rumors, um, or propaganda. The image, however, even when contested, became incontestable. We're now deep in the era of spectacle, and in a world which is swamped with images, pictures, and spectacles, we tend to forget stories, whereas images stay with us. Our consciousness, as Susan Sontag put it, is now saturated with image. To quote, the memory museum is now mostly a visual one. Photographs have an insuperable power to determine what people recall of events. To live is to be photographed, to have a record of our own life. But it is also to pose. Events are in part designed to be photographed. So that I hope that our photographer friend uh, is going to come up with good snaps today, otherwise we might as well not be doing this. <laughs> Allow me to offer you one final illustration from my own memory museum. This is a picture that some of you may have seen and a few of you may still remember. It is a picture known as the Madonna from Bentalha. It was taken by the Algerian photographer Hossein Zouara and was awarded the best world press photo of 1998. It was subsequently reproduced in numerous newspapers. The photograph was one that had been imprinted in my memory, but I could not remember anything about the story, the place, the people, or anything else. And it took me a very, very long time, more than a week actually, to locate the picture. And I was very pleased, if I can say, pleased about such a uh, tragic picture uh, when I found it. Its emotional impact had totally uh, obscured the human tragedy, the story behind the picture. According to the Copenhagen Post, the story behind the photo 
was of an Algerian woman grieving for her eight children killed in a massacre. A few days after the award was given, the French press agency announced that, in fact, the woman was grieving for her one brother and not her children. The mistake was pointed out by a journalist from another newspaper, Actuelt. Rasmus Limpoe had visited the woman in Algeria and says that the photo, titled Madonna from Bentalha, has destroyed her life. According to Limpoe, the woman feels humiliated and abused by the media and the photograph has caused her to be abandoned by her husband. She now lives in fear of her life, afraid of the authorities and of religious fundamentalists, all of whom blame her for the bad publicity created by the Bentalha massacre. Who now remembers the struggle whose tragic outcome the picture captures? Who remembers the woman whose name still remains unknown? Who remembers the facts behind the story? Who remembers the massacres of Rice and Bentalha, 28th of August and 22nd of September 1997, when hundreds of men, women and children, and even babies, were killed a few hundred meters away from army barracks? Who remembers, who knows, and who cares? It's time to return to our original example. A painting of a young girl is staring us sideways. A well-known painting by a notoriously unprolific painter, one that came to prominence as a result of an engaging novel and a Hollywood film. The painting takes us to a distant world. We are drawn into the world of a girl who sat patiently while a, pain, a painter carefully lavished his brush strokes on the canvas. As a deliberate pose, it might strike us as anticipating our own world of posing, images, and photo opportunities. But such an interpretation would be very naive. The world of this girl with a pearl earring is very different from our own world. We can only surmise what such a world might have been like. But as numerous commentators have noticed, this is a world of stillness. It is a world of tranquility which we should not confuse with peace, and whose orderliness we should not confuse with order. But it is a universe apart from the noisy, clamorous, and spectacular world of ours. Thank you.